and the prayers that you shared um, show that we and you are engaged in the things that matter. You know, we're going to watch, many of us will watch Super Bowl later, and it's just going to be kind of waiting in the shallow end, and it's, it can be fun and whatever. But the things that matter are the things that you prayed about and uh, what I'm going to preach about. And I, I uh, thought about giving a, you know, a public service announcement warning on this sermon. It's a, it's a heavy sermon in some ways, hopefully uh, heavy in a good way, but um, heavy in just the weight of evil and injustice in the world and how God has dealt with it. Um, so we're continuing on in our, our series on forgiveness and our, our, our focus has shifted from kind of forgiving one another to, to the broader uh, social vision of forgiveness, if you will. And so our, our passage this morning comes from Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 through 22. This is the Apostle Paul, and he writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. And remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we, were both, we both have access to one spirit, to one father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Lord be with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got to get my lines right here. The word of the Lord. Okay, there we go. A little moment of levity here. Um, so I want to ask a question. Are there some evils, some sins, that are, that are so evil and so horrific that from a human perspective they are unforgivable? Are there some, some sins that are just too evil and horrific to forgive as a human being, other human beings? Uh, in The Sunflower, uh, Simon Wiesenthal tells the story of a request made to him by a Nazi um, soldier. Wiesenthal was interned, imprisoned in a concentration camp in Poland during World War II. He's a Jew, of course. And part of his work in that camp was uh, as an orderly um, janitor in this makeshift hospital 
uh, for wounded German soldiers. And uh, at one point, uh, Wiesenthal sees on the campus of this camp um, a cemetery filled with graves and individual graves. And out of each grave was a sunflower that was growing. This was the grave, the cemetery for the Nazi or you know, German soldiers who had died. And of course, this was a striking contrast, metaphorically in his mind, between the, the kind of burial and dignity that these Nazi soldiers received compared to the mass graves that Jews got, which when they were gassed, they were basically thrown piles of them into large holes and then bulldozers would just push dirt over the top of them. So at one point, Wiesenthal is, um, he is you know, doing his work in the hospital and he finds himself in the same room as a young SS officer named Carl. And Carl is uh, badly burned. He is covered from head to toe in bandages and he is close to death. He can barely speak but Carl wants to confess his sins to a Jew. And Wiesenthal is there. And he begins to confess uh, how terrible and how ashamed he is to have ever even become a Nazi. And in particular, there's one event that haunts him, which is um, his role in sort of keeping a family a Jewish family in a building that was burning, that was set on fire by the Nazis and not allowing them to leave. So Karl, he unburdens himself on Wiesenthal and asks him for forgiveness. And Wiesenthal silently leaves the room, saying nothing. And years later in his book, The Sunflower, he's reflecting on this event and he asks this question. He says, ought I have forgiven him? This is a profound moral question. The crux of the matter is, of course, the question of forgiveness. Forgetting is something that time alone takes care of, but forgiveness is an act of volition. The question of forgiveness us with, presents us with a profound moral problem. How do we extend forgiveness without undermining justice? How do we extend forgiveness without cheapening or minimizing the great evil that others have done? How do we, um, who actually bears the cost of forgiveness in the face of horrific evil and crime? Uh, early on in our series, um, I talked about uh, the process of forgiveness um, based on the parable of the unmerciful servant, if you remember that sermon, uh, where the king in the parable is really a model for God, and, and the king um, shows us what the process of forgiveness looks like. And um, there's a four-step process that I talked about, and um, so the king does four things. He, first thing he does is he holds the servant accountable. He calls him to account for the wrong he's done. The second thing he does is he, he takes pity on him. He, he shows empathy to the servant situation. The third thing he does is, is he cancels his debt. And then the fourth thing he does is he, he sets him free. He, he releases him from prison. Today, I, I want us to reflect on it's, it's step three, <laughs> the canceling of the debt or the absorbing of the cost 
that is the question that raises a lot of important questions related to justice. And what we learned from the parable, if you remember, is that the servant was indebted to the king by 10,000 talents. It's something like a half a billion dollars. Like he could have never paid it off in a whole lifetime, multiple lifetimes, right? And the king, he cancels a debt. So what the king has to do is he absorbs the cost of the debt, right? In the rub of the story, the point of the story that Jesus tells it is that here you have this man who has forgiven this debt that is just astronomically high, but then he turns around, he's unwilling to forgive somebody whose debt is actually quite minor, very payable, right? And the rub of the story simply is like, we ought to forgive others because God has forgiven us, right? Now, um, the context of the parable and the nature of the forgiveness that's offered there generally deals with the interpersonal forms of forgiveness that we need to give to one another that arise naturally. And I think for most of us, the majority of our life, we'll never be asked to forgive something um, <clears throat> that amounts to 10,000 talents, right? Um, nevertheless, what does it mean for human beings to forgive horrific evils? <laughs> like the ones that Carl the SS officer committed and asked for forgiveness for. What, I mean, the, the magnitude of these kinds of evils, are, it's a different scale, right? See, it's one thing to forgive a friend when they hurt your feelings because of a rude comment. It's another thing, it's another thing altogether to forgive a person that has physically and sexually abused you, right? It's one thing to forgive a person who hurt you through an act of negligence. It's another thing to forgive a person who has taken the life of somebody you loved. And here's where the magnitude of the debt and that which is owed strikes us as too large when we get to these, these kinds of evils. And it's possible, of course, for God. We can see how God might forgive or this king he, he, uh, cancel the debt, but, but they're God. that's God and that's the king. How is that po possible for us to do this? I mean, what would it mean for the Jewish people to forgive the Germans? What would it mean? Uh, what would it mean for future Ukrainians to forgive Russians? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, we can't even ask. I mean, it's, it's, we don't even know how to think that question because the war is still ongoing. What would it mean for African Americans to forgive America, in a sense, for slavery, Jim Crow? And the legacy of those things? I mean, these are very uncomfortable questions. These are, very, these are impossible questions to answer. But there's, there's something about when evil comes into the world in these forms. It's like an oil spill, right? <laughs> you can clean it up, but, but the memory of it, the impact of it, sort of lasts for generations. What does forgiveness look like? What does reconciliation look like in, in these things? So, I think many of us are willing to grant that God can forgive people that have committed, committed horrific evils, like Carl, the SS officer, um, so long as their repentance seems genuine, right? And, and we see God in the Bible forgiving all kinds of people, murderers, <laughs> adulterers, I mean, great acts of evil. Um, you know, it's God. God can absorb the cost because God is God, right? But, but the thought of human beings forgiving one another for these kinds of acts is, that's where things tend to break down, right? That's where things get really difficult for us. And yet, for Paul, in, 
in, in Ephesians 2, he gives us this incredible vision of reconciliation that's not just a vertical vision, not just between us and God, but it's horizontal. And he says uh, in this passage, starting in verse 11, um, he says, remember you, and he's talking, about, he's talking to Gentiles, remember you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He has made us both one, that is, the Jew and the Gentile. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, the hostility here refers to the hostility between Jew and Gentile, racial hostility. And by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance, that he might create himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. In other words, taking Jew and Gentile, bringing them together and creating a whole new humanity that is not divided. That he might reconcile us both to God through the cross, killing the hostility. Um, the first thing about this passage is one of the most important, if not, in my view, the most important passages that deals with social, like reconciliation understood in a horizontal way between human beings, but really racial reconciliation. And second is that what we see Paul doing here is he is applying the cross to the problem of racial conflict. He is applying the, the cross to the problem of the warring of the nations, of groups against groups. <clears throat> and what Paul presents us here is this, this social vision of the cross that has the power to reconcile even the worst enemies, and reunite them in a common humanity in and around Jesus Christ through his blood, such that the church, and this is, a, this is a passage about the church, this is not a promise for the world, but it is a promise for the church, that the church becomes a place that is like a, de it's like a display community. It is, it's like a demonstration plot of the power of reconciliation in the world. Uh, I want to remind you just a little bit of this context. Paul is writing to a majority Gentile congregation, which means they're simply not Jewish. They did not grow up as Jews. They did not have Torah. They didn't have all the, the traditions. They were pagans. Um, and it's easy for us, I think, to forget um, the animosity or the division or the hostility between Jew and um, Gentile, right? But Christ has become our peace. He made us both one and broken down in his flesh. See, when we hear, you were once, you know, alienated from Israel and God has made one out of the Jew and the Gentile, I mean, in our church world ways, I mean, this is such distant history. But it's really helpful to read this through a geopolitical, in the light of geopolitical history. Um, and what I mean by that is that conflict between Jew and Gentile, um, it was, was a violent and bloody history that... Even to this day, there is no people group in all of human history that has suffered more violence, discrimination, persecution, and targeted murder than the Jewish people. Um, I mean, it's just a fact of history. It goes all the way back to Egypt when the, the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. And it happens through uh, Palestine, or, or the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans. Uh, European Christian nations, beginning in the Middle Ages, eventually in the modern era, Nazi Germany, and then also the Soviet Union, 
where the, I mean, just the level of, of hatred of God's people, of the Jews, is incomparable. And it's helpful to keep that in mind when Paul talks about the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile together. And that it's not to say that the Jewish people themselves aren't guilty of their own forms of violence, and that's very clear in the scriptures that they have been. But when Paul speaks about the dividing wall of hostility, it is against these things, these kinds of things that he speaks. This is not some sort of like, you know, nice spiritual reality, you know, minor differences of opinion. We're talking about the way that Jesus overcomes this dividing wall of hostility, which is murderous violence of nation against nation. So how then, how does that reconciliation work? How does Jesus' blood draw us back together? God does it through absorbing the cost. He absorbs the cost, which is what that, uh, the blood signifies, right? Blood is costly. It means life. He makes atonement. That's what absorbing the cost requires, to make atonement. That word atonement, right? It's an English word. You know, sometimes people say it's at one meant, right? It's two things that are apart, that are brought back together. And that all forgiveness, great and small, always requires some act of atonement. It always requires some act of atonement. And when they're small, it's easy for us to just sort of absorb the cost, right? That's part of forgiveness. I absorb the cost. I cancel the debt. But somebody has to pay the cost, right? But what happens when the cost is just so large, it is just astronomically large that it seems impossible that you could ever, ever, as a human, repay it. The fact of the matter is you can't. You can never. It can't be repaid. And that's where Paul here has the cross at the very center, because in the cross, God absorbs the cost of all of the terrible crimes, all of the wickedness, all of the hate, all of the evil, and absorbs it absorbs it into his life, and extinguishes it. That, that's what at the heart of the cross is all about. He achieves atonement. And this, the cross doesn't just take away the, the kind of evil and wickedness and sins that we commit that keep us from God. It does it for all of us, for our relationship to one another, right? Jesus, again, Paul's vision here is Jesus is our peace. And you think about this, this theme of Jesus being the mediator, He's the mediator. But as a mediator, he's not, it's a difference between a mediator and a negotiator. See, a negotiator comes in, and you have two parties that are in conflict, and they try to get them to listen and hear one another <laughs> and sort of be in between, right? They're a liaison, and, and that's an important thing, but that's not what we're talking about here. He's not a negotiator. He's a mediator. In other words, what happens is he gets between two parties, and all of the hate <laughs> and all the violence that they want to direct at each other, it gets directed to him, and he absorbs it, and he doesn't allow it to get redirected back. And he says, if you want to be one, you come inside me. How does this work? How does this work? Um, so this is the mystery of atonement. <laughs> Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? The answer in the history of anti-Semitism is, well, the Jews killed Jesus. <laughs> well, sure, they did, actually. But you know who else killed Jesus? The Romans. Gentiles and Jews killed Jesus. Who, 
who killed Jesus? Was it just elite people with power? Yeah, they, they, elite people with power put Jesus to death. But you know what? There was an opportunity for Jesus to be released, and all the masses and all the crowds said, no, no, crucify him. <laughs> Let go Barabbas. So who killed Jesus? Jew and Gentile. Elite and lower class. Everybody in between. This is a very significant point. Because the thing about the cross is that it absolutely levels the playing field. It is the most democratizing thing in all the world. Because what it does is says that in relationship to one another, none of us have the moral, higher moral ground. None of us can say we're without violence or we're without blood or we're without guilt. We're without sin. Not at all. No race, no class, no gender, no individual can claim moral superiority over against one another. None can boast that their righteousness is better or that they suffered more and they're more deserving. None are, before the cross, none. Are, and the cross reveals our inhumanity. It reveals our guilt and it puts us on the same level and says none of us can exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. This is so important. That's the first thing. But the other thing that the cross does that on the cross, Jesus identifies with the victims. He identifies with innocent suffering. I think one of the most important comforts that we can take as those who suffer injustice by no fault of our own is that Jesus himself identifies with us. Of course, we're not like Jesus. We're, we're all still sinners, even as we experience injustice, legitimate injustice that doesn't make us not sinners, doesn't make us pure. Jesus was the only righteous man, truly innocent man, that truly died an innocent death. The cross was, and it's clear in the scriptures, a miscarriage of justice at a cosmic scale that is inexcusable. It was a profound act of evil in which an innocent man died. But there's a way that he and his cross identifies with all those who have suffered injustice and violence at the hands of wicked men. In the black tradition, in the black church tradition, there's often an association with the shame of the cross and the shame of the lynching tree. That these are often interpreted and understood in relationship to one another, <clears throat> and the cross is an incredible source of strength spiritually and comfort because what it affirms is that God is truly with his people in their suffering. <clears throat> On the cross, Jesus identifies with all peoples that have suffered injustice and violence and evil. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 associates the blood of Jesus with the blood of Abel. And it's, Hebrews says this, Jesus is, the new, is a mediator of a new covenant, and his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Abel was murdered by his brother. He was an innocent man. What does it mean that Jesus' word speaks a better word than the word of Abel's blood? Abel's blood was an innocent blood, but it was not a saving blood. It was not a, a, a blood that reconciled anything. In fact, it was the exact opposite. The spilling of Abel's blood was the destruction of community, right? And it's a blood that, if you remember, spills into the earth. It spills into the ground, and actually God knows that something has happened because, as he says, you know, 
Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Shedding of blood and violence pollutes the earth, again, like an oil spill that exists with its residual effects for generations. And so when Hebrews says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's, what it is saying is that Jesus' blood reverses the terrible effects of Abel's blood being shed. That Jesus' blood reverses the terrible effects when blood is shed in the world. Rather than bringing more violence and hate and enmity and a cycle, it brings an end to violence, an end to injustice, an end to hate. It brings a cessation of hostilities. It brings reconciliation. That's, that's what, that's what he, Paul is talking about. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And here again, we, we enter more deeply into the mystery of atonement. Paul understood that there is no forgiveness without atonement. Somebody has to absorb the cost. Who's it going to be? And Paul understood that this question of God's forgiving sins, it wasn't simply like, because God is God, he can just wave a magic wand and say, be gone, sin, be gone, injustice, be gone. No, (laughs) it doesn't work like that. Without some kind of atonement, God's rule of justice and righteousness within creation would be overthrown and undermined. You can't just say, you're forgiven. Somebody had to absorb the cost. That's what atonement is about. And so in, in Romans 3, Paul has been, makes this point, and he's, he's speak, speaking specifically of our forgiveness that we receive from God. In chapter 3, speaking of Jesus, he says this, God put him, that is Jesus, forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, the word propitiation, it's, it's a hard word to translate. The word is hilasterion, and it means something like, uh, atoning sacrifice or blood sacrifice, right? That God put him forward as, a, as, a, as an atoning sacrifice to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. And it was shown his righteousness at the present time so that he might just be just and justifier, right? So in other words, God remains the just judge and doesn't look the other way when evil happens, but he's also the justifier. He's the one who makes it right. And so how does that blood then become atoning? What happens? And I'm just taking you, I want to take you more and more into the meaning of the cross. To whom is that blood addressed or paid, if you will, or ransomed? And this is, gets us at the burning, beating heart of Jesus' death on the cross. See, Jesus' blood was not a blood payment to the devil. It was not paid to some kind of a legal system outside of God that somehow God is sort of responsible to. It was not paid to the victims of injustice. Jesus' blood is, in a sense, something that God paid to himself as the Son of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in whom he is one in divinity and purpose. In Acts chapter 20, Paul gives a speech to the elders of Ephesus as he is leaving, and he tells them that the church, that the church, um, that God redeemed the church by his blood. And what's interesting there is he says that it's God, he describes the blood here as God's blood. Not just a man's blood, not Jesus' blood, it's God's blood. The point here is that Jesus, when Jesus sheds his blood on the cross, it's not just like, 
Jesus, you know, in his humanity, it is, it is God dying on the cross. It is God entering into our place. He becomes the judge, right? He's the judge who's judged in our place. He goes, undergoes the justice, undergoes the judgment in our place. And so on the one hand, Jesus identifies with victims of injustice. He identifies with those who are suffering unjustly. On the other hand, he also identifies with the perpetrators, those who are guilty, all of us, right? All of us. Perhaps we've never committed evil acts like Nazis and great things, but we all commit acts of evil that are deserving of God's judgment. And the cross of Christ is that form of judgment and wrath upon human evil and injustice in the world, and God renders justness, and that's what the blood represents. It represents God's righteous judgment upon sinful humanity. But, but that God himself pays the cost, right? He upholds his own justice, and he makes a way to forgive. He becomes our substitute. This understanding of atonement, um, I think, helps shed new light on the passage that we talked about last week about vengeance, where Paul tells the Romans... Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We don't have to take vengeance. We don't have to seek revenge. We can leave that to God because of the cross and also because of the assurance that someday God will come again and those who refuse to repent, those who refuse to to cease doing evil, God will bring final judgment. Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian, actually I was his research assistant for two years, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, and um, in that book he argues he's wrestling with this question of how do uh, Croatians forgive Serbians for genocide and slaughter and rape and he's wrestling hard with how to forgive one's enemy. And, and he comes to the cross. And he, one of the things he says is that without entrusting oneself to a God who judges justly, it will hardly be possible to follow the crucified Messiah and refuse to retaliate when abused. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is a presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. That quote is in the front of your worship folder. I encourage you to reflect on it. See, when we talk about forgiveness, we think that talk of forgiveness often undermines the pursuit of justice and cheapens the experience of the sufferer. But in the light of the cross, nothing could be further from the truth, right? In the light of the cross, we come to understand not just the true cost of forgiveness, we actually come to understand the true cost of justice. And that cost is the same thing. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. And this blood is not cheap. <laughs> it cost him his very life. I opened my sermon with a story of a wicked man asking forgiveness and not receiving it. I want to close my story with a different story of a wicked man asking for forgiveness and receiving it. Um, I'm speaking of here a man named Larry Nasser, who was a gymnastics coach and physician 
who uh, was discovered had sexually abused dozens and dozens of young girls that were under his care. Um, and about, I think, four or five years ago was finally exposed after decades, I think. And the person who, who actually uh, brought light and got him charged with a, a woman named Rachel Denhollander, who was one of his early um, victims. And she eventually blew the whistle, and many other women came forward, and he was put on trial, and he was convicted um, for these many crimes. And throughout the trial, you know, he was clinging to his Bible and talking of forgiveness. And uh, after his conviction, I think it was time of his sentences, the women who he had abused were given an opportunity within the courtroom to address Nasser and to share the deep pain of his evil acts against them. And one of the women was Rachel Denhollander, and she, <clears throat> she addressed his forgiveness, his request for forgiveness. And I just want to close with this, because it's a very powerful witness to how Justice and forgiveness are only held together in the person of Jesus on the cross. Justice and forgiveness can only be held together in the cross. <clears throat> Here's what she says. It says, you spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you had read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all, the, all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. You should never, you should, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. And I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more, <clears throat> which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Amen. Lord, may we worship at, at the foot of the cross. May we feel the weight, the weightiness of our own sin, of the sins of this world. But at the same time, might we feel a weight that is even heavier, which is the weight of your grace and the weight of your love. And so we throw ourselves on Jesus, we throw ourselves on the cross, and we pray in his name. Amen.